temper tantrums to crying cancel culture are everywhere. In the news, on social media, and now even in our government. But what's really going on? A new podcast demystifies the panic and dispels the many myths about cancel culture. It's called Cancel Me Daddy. It's hosted by Caitlin Burns, the very first openly transgender reporter on Capitol Hill, and our very own Oliver Ash Klein, who's actually my producer here on Brave Not Perfect and one of the founding members of the Trans Journalists Association. Caitlin and Oliver Ash shed light on what they call the cancel culture grift economy, delving into the latest scandals, laughing at the most outrageous takes, and taking a closer look at whose voices are actually being silenced in these conversations. It's fascinating, funny, and often surprising show that I think you're really gonna enjoy. Subscribe to Cancel Me Daddy right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you might get canceled. Hey, it's Reshma, and you're listening to my podcast, Brave Not Perfect. I'm on a mission to break away from the cult of perfection and help you live a bolder, happier life. Today, I've got a very special episode for you that I am so excited about. We're going to be discussing bravery and activism, speaking your mind, pushing for positive change. This topic, it's so close to my heart because making the world a better place is at the core of what I feel like I was put on this earth to do. It's my mission. It's what sustains me, whether it's running for office and failing miserably, pushing for gender equality in tech, or helping women unlearn perfection, fighting for a better future. That's what drives me. Joining me today is one of the most amazing women I know. Cecile Richards, she is a personal hero of mine, and I feel so blessed to call her a friend. Last year, she co-founded the groundbreaking organization, Supermajority. It's strengthening the political power of women through advocacy, building community, and supporting women engaging in politics. Of course, she's also the former president of Planned Parenthood and served there for 12 years. Under her leadership, the organization thrived, and its base of supporters grew from 3 million to 11 million. Cecile, she's a powerhouse and a leader in the movement for gender equality. I visited her at her supermajority office to talk about bravery, activism, and what the future of the movement looks like. So today we're going to talk about all things kind of activism and running for office. And I wanted to start off and talk about sisterhood. Because mm-hmm. it's so much of when I think about you, like I think about sisterhood. And I know your mom and Richard uh, played a huge role in your life. And so what did she teach you about courage, about bravery, and about sisterhood? It's interesting because I, I see what's happening right now in the world with women, particularly in the U.S., this explosion of women's activism and women taking the joy and all the success of other women and cheering each other on. And I think that was so, it was quite different back when my mom sort of in that era um, and women were really kind of just feeling their way. I would say, and, and my mother herself, I mean, she you know, she raised four kids. She was the perfect housewife. She did, as she said, she did all the things in the glossy magazines that she was supposed to do, throw the perfect dinner party. And it wasn't until so much later in her life that she actually sort of got liberated and got to go do her own thing and then eventually, you know, run for governor. Um, so I, I guess what I learned from mom uh, were two main things. One is 
Don't wait to be asked. Don't wait till it's your turn. Don't wait till everything's perfect. Uh, and the way I think about it now is sort of start before you're ready. You yeah. Know? Because if you wait till all these things line up, that you've had your kids or your kids are the right age or you've got the right degree, your chance may never come. And because I think she felt like she waited too late. And then, of course, she felt so strongly that it's fine to be the first, but not the last. And so lend a, lend a hand to a sister that needs it yeah. and bring other women along. And it's really interesting. I, a couple of times I have run into folks, Kathleen Sebelius, who used to be the secretary of HHS under President Obama, Janet Napolitano, who uh, you know served as the governor of Arizona. And they laugh about the fact that when mom was governor of Texas, which was only for four years, she used to have something she called governor girl school, which was like, <laughs> bring any woman she met anywhere and said, I'm going to come and teach you how to run for governor. And of course, the two of them ended up doing that. That's so awesome. So I love the idea. She was really, there's nothing that brought her greater um, joy than the success of other women. And I think that's something that, to me, is why I'm so excited about this this time right now. The thing also about your mom is she was really, um, she was very herself and authentic before it became cool to be mm-hmm. authentic. And like a lot of girls were just raised to be perfect and they were raised to say their please and thank you. So they weren't raised to like kind of tell you what they thought. When you met your mother, she always kind of told you what she thought. So right. she wasn't raised to be the perfect girl. You weren't raised to be the perfect girl. Is that true? Well, I, I mean, I actually think she had to rebel. She was an only child um, of a kind of a hard scrabble. Um, my grandparents who had not had any of the opportunities that mom eventually had. And I think she did feel a lot of pressure uh, to be perfect and to not make mistakes. And so even though, yes, externally, it looks like this, here's a woman just full of confidence, and she always knew what she wanted to do. And she, that was a learned attribute. And so I I like to kind of demystify this idea that, as I say, sometimes I think people think she just like sprung forth as this sort of feminist icon. But in fact, she really struggled to find her voice, to find her passion, to live her passion. And I think maybe because of that, by the time she did sort of burst onto the scene, she just wasn't wasting any time. Or as you say, she was telling it like it was. She used to, I mean, she used to make speeches to women and just say, you know, if you think that Prince Charming is going to be riding up on this white horse and save you from all this. It's more likely going to be a guy on a Harley who's behind in his car payments. Um, and so just don't think that someone's going to save you. And I, I really think she she learned that the hard way. Um, so, but it's funny that that's the way you think of her as just being this. Totally. Yeah. You know, that's totally how Truth telling. But that's because I think she saw a lot of the truths and realized okay, we can't be selling our daughters, yeah. our sisters, um, and other women, this line about um, how, oh, it's all going to work out and, yeah. and someone else is going to come in and fix it for you. But you are right. I mean, I saw her later in life, right? Later in her career where clearly like we got to that place. And I, and I always say like, I think a lot of women are kind of living these very kind of um, doing all the right things. And then they're like, is this it? Right. (laughs) And you kind of have this revelation and you start like really basically pursuing what you're meant to do. And it kind of changes so much of the way that you've kind of been operating in the world before. You know, as you were growing up, what were the big lessons that you kind of learned and saw and like that led you to be the Cecile Richards that you are today? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I grew up in Texas. And as I say, you know, I was born in Waco. We, We grew up in Dallas. 
Um, and my parents were against everything. I mean, they were fighting against the poll tax. They were fighting for civil rights. They were fighting against the establishment. And so I think from a very early age, I found that that was actually, um, that was, that was a life you could pursue would be to push your community, push society, push government, push culture in, in a place that they didn't want to go. And so that was, and my dad was a civil rights attorney and a labor attorney. My mom was just, you know, picked up every cause that came through, you know, and look, I've been I'm very clear about this. I have been incredibly blessed that I was always able to choose what I did for a living. Mm. And I've worked with many women over the years who did not have any choices, um, who just were basically getting by. Um, but I did learn that that was something, if you could if you could choose what you did with your life, what an opportunity was to try to make change that was for the good. And the other thing I learned, and I try to talk to um, folks about this now, this really terrible era we're living in, where we see, I mean, just so many topics that we could discuss. Um, and I think it's hard and some people just are a little bit despondent um, or a lot. Uh, I think one of the things I learned early on is that you can actually find enormous joy in working with other people to change the world. I mean, it's how I met my husband. It's what my kids do. It's like all my friends, they do different kinds of things like that. But that Actually, it's a pretty um, wonderful community, and that's whether it's volunteering on a campaign or whether it's marching for women's rights or what, whatever, or teaching yeah. young girls how to code. Um, it, you find the most amazing people, and that becomes your squad, your community, and that there is real, um, I think, particularly these days, I think it can bring you enormous comfort. I love it, right? It's like resistance is joy. And we talk a lot, right, about how that that's like many of us have found community, like in the struggle and how, you know, it's been actually uplifting to think about how you can actually reshape communities. So when I look at you, I almost actually think one of the bravest things that you've done is to step down from Planned Parenthood. And that that was probably hard. Because I, I feel like as an activist, I'm always thinking, is my highest, best purpose being CEO of Girls Who Code? Like, should right. I be doing something else? Or should I also be making room for new leadership to come in? And when I know when I have these questions with the people around me, everyone's always like, no, 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 no. Like, this is what you should be doing. And right. there's a lot of, like, <clears throat> people don't encourage you to actually take risks. Right. What were, what were, as you were thinking about this next mm -hmm. part phase in your your life as a leader and as an activist and where you could actually make the best amount of uh, difference. Like what were people saying to you? What was going through your head too? Well, I think there are, there are always people say, yes, you can't leave. They can't imagine what else, you know, or they just sort of see you in a certain place. And, and I do want to acknowledge it was, it was the most amazing job of my lifetime. I'll never have another one like it. The opportunity to work with, an organization and a movement that makes a difference in people's lives every day is just something extraordinary. And I also felt like we spent a lot of time and resources investing in a whole new generation of leaders at Planned Parenthood, young people, people of color, and people with different gender identities and sexual orientations. And I mean, really, to me, that was the most lasting thing that we could do at Planned Parenthood was to bring it into this next century. And sometimes you have to go, well, you know, if you're going to talk the talk, you've got to also walk the walk. And I thought, look, it's important that um, I make space uh, and there'll be another person who can do this. And also, 
there's a lot of other things I can do. And so it was scary and it still is. It still is sometimes. But um, it's exciting to think that that we can step aside and things continue, things continue on. And look, now at Supermajority, I'm getting to meet and invest in this whole new group of yeah. incredible young women. Um, and that's exciting too. So what is Supermajority? So Supermajority is um, the idea of it was that this is a moment where literally millions of women are raising their hand and saying, I, I want to do more. I want to be involved, whether it's run for office or which is the most common thing we hear. But many times it's just like, I need to make a difference. And so I started talking to some other friends, I, Jen Poo with the domestic workers and Alicia Garza, from, who was one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter and other colleagues and saying, the worst thing would happen is if all these women raise their hand and we didn't do anything and we actually didn't help them take the next step. So the idea of supermajority is we wanted to build a home where women um, and really all people who believe in gender equality and believe that there are things that need to change that are significantly structural problems in this country that keep folks back. Um, and if we could build that community and empower women, that we could probably change a lot of things that are frustrating for all of us. And of course, you know, we launched last April, and it, it, I think an important moment because certainly um, the engagement of women it hasn't abated since the last election. If anything, I think more women are even. I just last week I was with some women and they were saying, you know, I really haven't done anything since 2016, but now I feel like I need to, and I feel like great super majorities here because our goal in 2020 just as our first sort of first year is to run the largest woman to woman voter engagement program in the country because women will be the majority of voters in 2020 um, they were in 2016 and were in 2018 women are the majority of volunteers of activists increasingly uh, as candidates and what a great opportunity for women to begin to feel that collective power so when you say I mean, you talk about it being like uh, we need a new deal for gender equality what does that mean yeah well you know it's it's interesting and we were talking earlier about just you know, many of the struggles that women face on the job, in culture, in government are that they're just structural barriers to allow us to participate. So um, one of the things that, of course, still I, I worked on this at Planned Parenthood and is just continues to vex me is that uh, maternity care, maternity leave is still considered a nuisance by most employers as opposed to a fundamental issue for the majority of American workers, right? right. So when are we going to actually turn things on its head? I remember um, being in Austin and a young woman said to me, she was part of a supermajority convening. And she said, you know, I fought to get maternity benefits at my tech company. And we finally did. She said, of course, it was too late for me at that point. Um, but I realized I can't, we can't be doing this employer by employer by employer. Why don't we just actually say this has to be a national imperative uh, is to allow women to participate in the workforce and not be penalized for it. Um, that issue I don't care if you're working at Walmart or you're working for a you know venture capital firm. This is an issue that women face all over the place. Why is it in 2020 we're still talking about equal pay as if this isn't something that if we prioritize as a country, we could solve? Anyway, I could go on and on, but the, I think the idea here with supermajority is we've actually speak to the values that I think are nonpartisan values. They cross geography, they cross um, ethnic and racial background. These are just fundamental issues of fairness that women 
believe in, and frankly, most men believe in, and it's time that government and society address them. Um, And I do think this presidential election is a perfect opportunity to have them lifted up into the national dialogue. So do you think, what? so what is it going to take? Because I mean, I think about this in terms of tech, right? And like, right. you're seeing kind of this uprising happen with women in tech. You're seeing walkouts organized by women. You're right. seeing women really kind of demand for, for what is fair and equitable. And you're also seeing a backlash, mm-hmm. you know, from tech companies when you see women and people of color speak up, which is... Um, it's horrible. So but right. what is it going to take, though? Well, I think partly it is that the opportunity for women in particular, and I don't mean women alone can solve these problems, but women right now are where a lot of the energy is in this country. But when women actually get together and begin to realize that the problems that women are facing in tech are not that dissimilar from the women everywhere else. And, you know, I've been in, um, I think, 16 states in the last few months, convenings of women, teachers, women who are in the tech industry, uh, women who are dreamers, you just name it. And so many of the issues that we face are so similar. And so I think that's part of it is that we can't expect every group of women in every different industry or every different walk of life to solve these problems. We need a collective agreement that these are the values we're fighting for, and we're going to stand with each other um, to do that. So just imagine if the mandate for the next president of the United States was to deal with the issue that childcare is completely unaffordable uh, and there is no plan in this country for helping not only mothers, families, people deal with it. What if we actually agreed that women's health care, including the fact that there is an epidemic rate of maternal mortality, particularly among black women in this country, is the top priority to solve? What if these kinds of things, women across the board, stood with each other on? And then it wouldn't be up to the women in tech or the women at Walmart, or the women, you know, name your place. But it would, in fact, it would be, this is our collective job in the United States. Um, one of the things that's been so stunning to me, and I'm so grateful to Tarana Burke, um, to the women of Time's Up, the epidemic of violence against women in this country. And yet, I mean, it is, it is so deep and so profound. And yet we have a United States Senate that refuses to even address this issue. Um, That's what I believe we have to have women across industry and across geography um, and background stand up together. So why is it? Why, why, Why do you feel like there is still so much kind of structures in place to keep women in their place? Well, because they were built that way to keep us out. I mean, Stacey Abrams is actually, to me, one of the mo- the best stories about this when she, you know, goes yeah. as a young girl to the governor's mansion and they won't story. let her in. And she says, I realize this, this place was actually built so that I couldn't get in there. I think the interesting thing, and I'm realizing this more and more as we do hear from women across the country, is that um, when women finally figure out, oh, it's not something I did, it wasn't my own failings or my own lack of planning or... It's that there was never a plan to help women be in the workforce. There was never a plan to help women uh, participate in the economy and take care of their children and raise a family. All of these issues are, I mean, for the most part, are issues that women face everywhere. And I think that's, we literally were not ever meant to be part of the system. Look, next August will be the um, anniversary of the beginning of suffrage for women in this country. It's only been 100 years. And of course, it's so important to point out, even then, um, suffrage was only granted to white women. It took decades more for women of color. So if you think about it, um, really all of the systems were built to keep women out. And I just think 
the reason this moment in history is so interesting to me is women are now a supermajority of almost everything in, in employment, in our voting, in participating as volunteers, in raising all of the issues that are being raised in this country now from climate change to gun safety to access to health care. And so I think that's why you're seeing the pushback is because there's a few folks who've been holding on to power for a long, long time. Um, and I think they're realizing that, um, you know, time's come, you know, it's our moment now. Yeah. And that causes anxiety. I was thinking of this woman in Cincinnati the other day. She was at one of our convenings and she said, I had lunch the other day with the man and he's in my same industry. And he said something to me that it was so shocking. She said, he, he said to me, do you know what I think the biggest mistake the United States ever made was? And she's sitting there thinking, I don't know, what could be the answer? And he said, giving women the right to vote. <laughs> so I thought that's, you know. At least he said it. At least he said it. <laughs> so on that, like, so what do, what do you feel? Like, I talk a lot about it, like everyday bravery and courage, right? Like in that moment for her to say something to him, that woman from right. Cincinnati, right? right? We've been raised to actually not say anything. Sure. And so every day, like it's like a thousand knives. Mm-hmm. So what can we teach women to start exercising kind of their everyday bravery so then they're ready for that protest? They're ready to like change policies that are in their workplace. Right. Or even just feel like they're going to get, you know, get the backup. Um, Because I think that you're right. We are, we are taught, we're supposed to be the peacemakers. We're supposed to, you know, not ruffle anyone's feathers, not rock the boat. And, and I think it isn't, it is a new learned behavior. And partly that is women standing up for other women. And actually, men standing up for other women, young men will come up to me all the time and say, well, I really want to be a good ally. What can I do? And I said, well, next time a woman raises something about equal pay, about treatment in the workplace, you know what? Stand up. Stand up and say, you need to listen. And this is actually an important issue because we can't do this on our own. So I think that's one of the things. It's just, you know, I, I, I was I was speaking to a group um Actually, it was interesting. It was a convening of the United Nations. It was mainly men. It was about women in this moment. And someone said, well, what could we do? And I said, well, look at the boards you sit on. And if there aren't women on those boards or people of color, um, or they're not, they're like one, then it's time for you to stand up and say something. Don't wait for the person who's underrepresented to stand up. So I think that's a big piece of it. And the other thing, and this is what we've been doing some at Supermajority, is share the stories of success, no matter how small they may seem, because that is what encourages other women. Mm. They see women taking a step. And that is the interesting thing. 70% of the women who've joined Supermajority say they've never been an activist before. And partly is they're trying to find their voice. And I remember one of the other really moving things was, I, you know, a lot of times we ask women, what when did you feel most powerful? And one one thing that has was came up across the board in state of her state was when Oprah Winfrey stood up at the Golden Globes and spoke for all women. And I think that's partly is that women are they are encouraged by seeing other women's bravery. Yeah. And we can't underestimate that. And when a woman takes a stand, um, stand up and support her. You just never know. I'm sure you know yeah. how much that means. It means a lot. So it's 2020. What does success look like for supermajority? What's happened? I mean, what will success will look like to me is that the issues that women care about, their economic fairness, uh, support for their families, bodily integrity, having a government that actually looks like us will actually be in the national debate. That this presidential 
conversation that we're having, as well as political races all across the country, the role of government and society in addressing historic inequities to women will actually be part of the conversation. And number two, of course, is that women will be the majority of voters, and they will be educated, they will be motivated, uh, they will be talking to their sisters, and that we'll change the direction of this country, no matter who's president. How can listeners follow you and support your work? Uh, JoinSupermajority.com. Doesn't cost anything. It's really just a way to get information and stay informed. And uh, and I hope, because, you know, I, what happens all the time, I'm sure this happens to you, women will come up to you, just grab you by the shoulder and say, like, what am I supposed to do? And I was going to say, like, there isn't any one thing. You know, there isn't any one thing. It's just that if each of us do more mm-hmm. and do more to support each other, that's the thing. Um, I'll end with this last story because sometimes you forget how much just giving that little nudge of encouragement to each other can matter. I was um, doing a book event at NYU last summer. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, now it would have been, now it would have been two summers ago. And uh, someone had written in a question, what should I do? I don't know. And and I said, well, I don't know who you who wrote in, but I would just say, if I were you and you didn't know what else to do, I would quit my job and go work for Stacey Abrams because she's the most <laughs> incredible candidate, exciting woman running. She's running for, you know, governor of Georgia. And we went on, did the rest of the questions. Literally that next week, someone writes to me on Instagram and says, Cecile, I was sitting in the audience and I heard what you said. So I went home, I quit my job, I'm moving <laughs> to Atlanta, and I'm becoming Stacy's deputy digital director. <laughs> and I thought, you know, it's funny how it's very rare that, the, that you go, oh, actually, this worked. <laughs> but um, I do think sometimes it's just encouraging all of us to yeah. take a risk, yeah. you know, do something that seems scary. I think a lot of women, like every woman I talk to is exhausted. Like exhausted. Yes, always, always, always has been. <laughs> always has been. And like we're never going to do the braver thing if we're tired. Like we're never going to take a risk if we're tired, right? We're never going to go quit that job we hate and like go work for Stacey Abrams' campaign like if we're tired. And so yeah. what do we do for our self-care? What do you do for your self-care? No, this is always really a hard question <laughs> because, I mean, but you do have to, ha- I, I'm, I'm recognizing, particularly now, this is long haul work. This is not, we're not going to fix things tomorrow. And so I do think taking care of ourselves and taking care of each other is an important part of being an activist and being an organizer. So maybe for me, sometimes it's getting to do things that just make me feel good. And I baked um, a pumpkin cheesecake for the staff here and got to bring it in. And that doesn't really sound like self-care in a way, but the joy yeah. that baking this cheesecake, the joy of the staff, that's what feeds me, right? And so I think it's important to remember that we are all human beings and that we have to take joy in the small things that give us pleasure. I baked gingerbread men with my son last week and I felt the same thing. I felt so, it was so almost meditative, right? Yes, Yes, I think it's, I love things like that, like baking, or I'm still trying to learn how to sail, things like this, where you actually can't be looking at your phone, you can't be, you kind of have to put your brain on hold into this other endeavor. And yes, we should all have things like that. Instead of feeling like, God, I should really watch that documentary, or I should read that book about some tough topic. I think we have to find things that just take us out of this uh, day-to-day life. Because that's the other thing I think is important, Rashma, to remember is that 
I don't care what happens in 2020, the digging out of where we have been and the ugliness that a lot of people have experienced and seen in this country, this is not a matter of who's in the White House. And I mean, it's partly a matter of who's in the White House, but it is really about who are we as a country, who are we as a people, how do we find and sort of restore the basic humanity of all people, and that's going to take a while. Yeah. And uh, so I think it's important not to gloss over um, what a painful, what a painful time this is for us. Yeah. And how do we find love? That's powerful. exactly. That's right. Thank you. Hey, so good to see you. That was Cecile Richards, a personal hero of mine. She's the co-founder of Supermajority and the former president of Planned Parenthood. In just a minute, I'm going to dive into your questions about bravery and activism. So stick around. I have to tell you about a podcast I listen to that gets me rubbed up every time I hear it. It's all about women rising up called Inflection Point with Lauren Schiller. On Inflection Point, you'll hear powerful stories from women leading change and taking charge. You'll come away inspired with expert advice and tools for how to act on issues that matter to you at home, at work, and in the world. Every conversation with Lauren gives us hope, makes us laugh, and teaches us something new about how to create the world we want to live in. Believe me, I've been on her show, and Lauren not only makes it fun to talk about the tough stuff, she wastes no time getting to the heart of the matter. To hear how women rise up, go to Apple Podcasts, or the app you're listening on right now and subscribe to Inflection Point with Lauren Schiller. Hey everyone, I'm Ashley. I'm the producer of Brave Not Perfect and keeping with today's theme of activism, we've got some listeners who've been sending in questions about getting involved, running for office and just trying to change the world for the better. Ooh, I can't wait to hear them. Okay, so our first question comes from a high schooler. All right. Um, They wanna know how they can spread the Brave Not Perfect message at their school. I love this question so much because I really wish I had this message when I was in high school. Mm, I love that. Look, I think that, um, and it's so important, right? Because in high school, I feel like is like when really is like when you're like giving up before you try and thinking you're either good at something or bad or something. And the other thing is we're watching each other. And so when you see another, you know, one of your friends basically, you know, tell herself that she can't do that or give up or, you know, think she's either, you know, bad at something because it didn't come to her, you know, the first time. It's like we we copy each other. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of what I would say to this amazing listener is like, model your behavior that you want to see. So take on something that you're scared to do or that you might not be good at. Like, you know, take risks, like uh, encourage failure, like fail yourself. And when you do so, like share it with other people and don't be embarrassed by it, but be like, yeah, that was amazing. Like I tried, I don't know, surfing for the first time and I was really bad at it, but you know what? I loved it. And I think, I think other people will follow you. Yeah, and I think another thing is you can kind of cheer on your friends Mm. and ask them, like, what are the things that they want to do that they're kind of scared to, they're scared they might fail, and encourage them to kind of take those risks and do those things. Yeah. I also, it was funny, as you were talking, I was thinking about, like, high school, too, it's, like, so much of, like, the evils of social media, right? Like, (laughs) I don't know, can you start, like, changing those norms, too? 
you know, whether it's like not posting the perfect selfie that is perfectly filtered and where, you know what I mean, you look uh, how you're, I don't know, whatever. Like instead of like posting the 500 selfie, posting the first one, like really thinking about how do you change the norms of perfectionism on, on social media? Yeah, I think that's really, really good advice. Um, something else that comes to mind is like maybe starting some kind of club, like a feminist club. Where yeah, people- a Brave Not Perfect Club. Brave Woo-hoo! Not Perfect Club, let's do it. Um, yeah, let us let us know about your Brave Not Perfect Club. I want to hear about it. <laughs> well, you know, or it's like, you know, make it your mantra. Like, I have so many young people tell me, like, when I walk out the door, I'm like, I'm going to be brave, not perfect today. And when you find yourself, like, falling into that perfectionist tendency or when that voice pops up in your head that tells you that you don't, you know, you're not smart enough, you're not this enough, you're not that enough, like, you're telling it to be quiet and you're reminding yourself brave, not perfect. Because, again, like, the greatest people in the world, whether they're athletes, or leaders or change makers, they failed. They took risks. You know, they, everything didn't work out for them all the time from the beginning, but it didn't, it didn't, that didn't deter them. And I think we're reminding yourself of that and literally practicing imperfection and finding joy. It's a game changer. It can change your whole life. I'm so excited for you to start your Brave Not Perfect journey and to spread the love with others. And let us know how it goes. We're cheering you on. Okay, for our next question, we have a listener writing in about how they can learn more about local government. So, you know, this question is really about getting involved in the community and making change. Someone who wants to have an impact but isn't really sure where to start. Oh, I love this question. So I think a lot of people, like, don't know about local government, right? They don't Mm -hmm. know, like, you know, how do I get on my school board or what's, you know, what's the governing body of my town, my city, my community? And I think, like, actively seeking that out and, like, learning about that is really important. Dare I say the second thing? Run for something. There's some young, young folks that are on city council or school board or, you know, even state senators, uh, even congresswomen. So like, I don't know, think about maybe looking at a race that you might actually want to get involved in and, and, and run and try. And then if you don't want to run, I always say like one of the best things I ever did was volunteer on campaigns. Mm. I started volunteering on campaigns, I think when I was like 18 years old, I, you know, I did my first March when I was 13. I, you know, ran for a college seat. I think when I was in college, but like I, in all those things, it taught me how to lead. Like had I not had those experiences of building an organization, you know, creating a message, getting people excited. I never, Never would have started Girls Who Code or written Brave Not Perfect. Like those early experiences taught me how to be a leader. Totally. Um, and I think another thing is if there's an issue in your community that you really care about or you're interested in getting involved with, like there's probably a group working on that issue. Yeah. And so if there's a group working on it or if there's someone in your community who is pushing for the kind of change that you want, like go talk to them. Get in, Like they are going to be a great avenue to get involved. And if they care about it, like they're going to be really excited that you're coming to them. Yeah, I, I love that. Right. You're always looking for people to kind of um, join organizations and to like and to lead in them. All right, future change maker, maybe even future president of the United States. I am so excited for you and excited that you're thinking about like your community and thinking local. Like everything starts in your neighborhood, right? That's where change happens. So I'm going to be looking out for you and hopefully voting for you one day. 
I'm so excited for this person. Okay, so this one is a little bit tougher, um, but fortunately you have some experience dealing with this. (laughs) So someone wrote in because they're interested in running for office. Yay. Yay. Um, But they're wondering how they can gain party support or how to build a strong campaign on your own if you don't have a party behind you. So what advice do you have, Rashma? Look, I think that we have so many examples I'm thinking about my friend, um, Alexandra Ocasio, Congresswoman Ocasio, who didn't have party support and built a ground game and literally went door to door to door to door to door and organized people. So we're living in really different times where you don't have to have the machine behind you. And you certainly should not, the fact that you don't have them behind you, that should not be a deterrence for running for office. Like change doesn't happen unless we demand change, unless new people run for office. And, you know, unfortunately, the way that our political system is set up, it's not, it's not incentivized to encourage new people to run. You know, you have basically politicians who treat their jobs like their jobs, and they stay in these positions forever. And then we wonder why our political system is broken. So you know what? Don't let that deter you. Just go for it. You will find people who will lift you up, who will believe in you, who will support you. Do you have any advice for for getting that support and building that support? So, you know, I started with my friends. When I decided I was going to run, I wrote an email and I literally sent it to my friends. I remember I had like a meeting in my house and it was like this ragtag group of people who were not involved in politics. But each of us kind of had a skill set. Like, so someone was really good at design. Another person knew how to build a website. Like someone was like, you know, all of us had little skills, like different skills that we brought to the table. And that's how I ran my first campaign. And some of those, you know, some of those folks are my closest friends in the world. Some of those are new friends that I forever have in my life. So, you know, you can figure this out. And you'll be surprised at the the people, whether they're in your family or your friends or your neighbors, that will kind of come and rally to you and what they will bring to the table. Yeah, that was some really good advice, Rashma. And our next question is also about running for office. Ooh, Ashley, I think we're starting a little movement here. So one listener wrote in about how to overcome imposter syndrome and advice for how young candidates can deal with ageism. Mm, such That's such a great question. And I get it. You know, when I first ran, I was so worried that people would think I was too young or wasn't smart enough that I would literally memorize my stump speech. And I would like pace my apartment. I would like fold it up, put it in my back pocket because I wanted to sound smart. I wanted to sound congressional. And what was happening was like I wasn't connecting with the room, right? Because mm. I was just thinking about the words and I was too worried about what other people thought about me. So I was trying to dress and act and speak the part. Mm-hmm. But it's not a part. People can like see through that, right? Yeah. So like, don't worry about your age. Don't, you know, again, like you're ready. Like you're prepared. Like you can do this. The thing you have to remember is to just be you. Speak from the heart. Dress how you want to dress. Say the things that you want to say. You know, don't try to mold yourself into this kind of, you know, caricature of what you think uh, an elected official or a politician looks like. That, that time has passed. And I think what people are looking for now is authentic representations almost of themselves, 
Mm-hmm. Like I want to see myself in a candidate. I want to see my struggles, my ideas, my beliefs, my my the things that I'm going through. I want to see their realness. I don't want you to be some like almost like, again a caricature of what I want or what I, we think a politician should look and speak like. Totally, three hundred percent agree with that. You know, I think another thing is if someone is bringing up your age and being dismissive about it, just respond by talking about what you want to do. Right. Just talk about why you're the best person for the job and just like kind of ignore that question. Yeah. Also, it's, you know, it's so I actually have been thinking about this so, so much over the past year, particularly like some of the greatest leaders of mo- movements. You know, if you think about Greta and climate change and the March for Our Lives kids on gun reform and all of these incredible young activists for, you know, Black Lives Matter, they're all young. Mm hmm. And so it's clear that age doesn't matter, especially in this moment. I always say, right, like it's like our leaders are behaving like children or our children are behaving like leaders. I, almost, <laughs> I love that. It's so true, right? Like I almost bet on the morality and the compassion and the empathy and the wisdom of young people right now. So unfortunately, that's going to be all of the time we have for these wonderful questions about Mm. activism and changing the world. Mm, That makes me sad. I loved those questions. And I love I love talking to people who are really thinking about how to make positive change and changing the world. Um, So that's it for today. But please keep sending your questions in at Brave Not Perfect at GirlsWhoCo.com. Or you can leave a voicemail at 347-76-BRAVE. And I might just answer your question on the show. Did you enjoy today's show? Then you should make sure to subscribe. That way, you never miss an episode. Brave Not Perfect comes out every other Tuesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Ashley Dejan, the executive producer of the show. Tanya Zaporonik and Charlotte Stone are my co-producers, and we, of course, couldn't do it without the support of Deborah Singer and Jenny Josephson. Stay safe, and we'll see you soon.